With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Batter up. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to of their own this is episode 44 of a pot of their own i am allison mccaig and i am joined this week by my lovely co-hosts linda serovich hi linda hey allison and maggie wiggin hi maggie hi allison we are also joined this week by a very special guest uh brian wright author of the brand new book the new york mets all-time all-stars hi brian hi everyone great to be on with you um so your book is strictly about the best met at every position in the franchise's history so you're trying to create sort of like a Mets all-star team of sorts um did any Mets surprise you when you were researching this book where you were like oh yeah like he was way better than I remember yeah the the so I created a team a 30-man roster and I guess the um the the difficulty in it was like it was by I did it by position, so I was ranking these people by position, which made very, made it very tough. Like when determining the best starting pitchers, as we all know, the Mets have had a a ha, are very deep when it comes to great starting pitchers in their history. So that was tough to narrow it down, and I actually expanded it out to seven. But as far as people that uh, surprised me, and um, in particular, someone that I just when I jotted down when I first started making this team in like my initial, initial draft and just, you know, very speed jotted people down and said, okay, this person, this person, okay, Keith Hernandez, that's a shoe in second baseman. I jotted down Daniel Murphy and I said, 
he probably isn't one of them, but okay, just move on. Then I looked at Daniel Murphy and this is funny because, you know, there are guys that I never saw. I only see through, you know, old clips or have read about through books, but Daniel Murphy is a guy I saw, we all saw, you know, firsthand. And I just didn't realize that he actually did better than I remember. Um, We also, we all remember what he did in October, 2015, when he, became a, a combination of like Reggie Jackson and Babe Ruth rolled into one <laughs> with that home run exhibition uh, that led him to the pennant as well. We do also remember him for his antics on the field and the base pass. I mean, antics, he was just very inconsistent, but before that he was a very consistent hitter. I mean, he averaged about 30 doubles a year was an all-star in 2014. And for the most part was very, very consistent at the plate. So um, that was a guy that, that I initially was like, oh, he won't make it. And then I go, oh, he actually does. And it, it wasn't just because of what he did in, in that postseason run in 2015. He had a lot more to him. Do you think One that the- if Daniel Murphy, like for argument's sake, if Daniel Murphy had like re-signed with the Mets instead of signing with the Nationals, do you think he would that would have gotten him over the hump to be like inarguably the best second baseman in Mets history? I mean, if he had a year like he did in uh, Washington 2016, maybe. Um, and it, but it, Fonzie, you can't defend Fonzie. I know. I I love a girl Alfonso. So that's it's. It, there's. I'm obviously that's a hypothetical, but I think his. Well, he wanted to sign with the Mets, and it's unfortunate the Mets didn't do that. I think that was a, obviously it was a big mistake at the time. That's just not second guessing; it's first guessing. Um, but I do think his year was fueled a lot by. Uh, revenge at the Mets' expense, and it worked out very well. But to think that if he did play for the Mets and had a season close to what he did in 2016, I mean, you take away Dana Murphy from the Nationals, put him on the Mets, the Mets win the division, and who knows what happens after that. So uh, I hate trying to think about that, but um, it would have been interesting. It would be interesting to see what his impact in terms of, of uh, or his rank in terms of second baseman. I, I do love Edgardo Alfonso, and he'd be hard to top. Well, one of the things I think surprised me was that David Cohn didn't make it into your rotation. He was an honorable mention, but I suspected like Cohn was a shoo-in. And I was like, oh, I guess not. Yeah, <laughs> so that kind of surprised me. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, the, the, the last, it was, I knew even when I ex- expanded out to seven pitchers that I was going to leave one or two starting pitchers that, could easily have made it and, and probably on other teams would have made it. Um, I had basically had it down to four people for two spots. Uh, Ron Darling, um, Al Leiter, David Cohn, and Sid Fernandez. And I couldn't really have a problem if you were to put Cohn and Fernandez in there and not put Darling and, and Leiter. Um, I put Darling in there because I think he, you know, he, he had a, even though I didn't, use um, length of service as the be-all end-all argument um, he did have uh, 99 victories which in the 80s and in early 90s was was of some importance and 99 victories is fourth all-time in Mets history um, he was had a very good year in 85 that kind of got uh, obscured by Gooden's great season in, in in 85 and then in 86 he was also wonderful and got a lot of no decisions but had a fantastic year um, and I Put that kind that that and having two very good World Series starts uh, certainly helped as well. But yeah, Cone, it's tough to leave him off. Had a great 88, 20 and three, 
led the league in strike strikeouts a lot, 19 strikeouts in a game. Um, that was tough to leave him off and, and going to Al Leiter. Leiter's numbers don't stand out, but the fact that he pitched in the steroid era, and if you kind of use the stats that balance out the eras, he stacks up pretty well in Mets history. So I went with him there, and then Sid Fernandez, who I think is, is underrated. I think people don't give him enough credit. Um, I, I judge the pitchers in the era in which they pitched. It's kind of complicated. I tried, I obviously looked at, you know, all the eras and tried to even it out, but I examined the pitchers in the time they pitched like Sid Fernandez today, who normally only could go like six or seven innings today. He'd be great. He'd be an ace, but in the eighties, he, you know, labored in the later innings and couldn't finish a lot of games. Um, so that to me was kind of the reason if I had to pick one, why I put him in the honorable mention. I think Ron Darling being such a humble individual overall is like part of the reason he's so underrated as a Met, because if you listen to him as a broadcaster talk about his own career, you'd think he was like mediocre (laughs) the way he talks about himself. He's got big fourth starter energy, um, but is like decidedly not a fourth starter by any other measure. Yeah, he he was number he was like the number two guy behind Gooden and yeah, he comes, he is very humble. And I think other people may say that he's, that his, the fact that he is so beloved and he's so present now in the booth that maybe he's overvalued. Now we think of his career, like more than it was. And then you talk to him and he kind of downplays it. So there's that balancing out effect right there. Well, and another thing that I noticed as a recurring theme is that, Pretty much throughout their entire existence, the Mets just don't support their pitchers with run support. <laughs> like Matlack, Kuzman, Jake, like they're all in the same boat here. It, it is. It's everyone talks about Jake not getting a lot of support, but it's been a tradition in Mets history. I mean, even Seaver didn't get a lot of runs. No. The whole, I mean, in the mid seventies, they were just not scoring, and that was part of the contention for Tom Seaver. Um, for why he wanted to, um, you know, kind of want to, why he wanted to leave because the Mets weren't support, you know, they weren't getting a lot of good hitters uh, in the lineup that could give him more chances at victories. But John Matlack in 1974, I think this is how I start his entry, was like the Jacob deGrom of 1974. He had a great year. His ERA was fantastic. He had a losing record. And he had like, and this was, you know, back in the day when Cy Young voters, they kind of looked at wins more than anything did not even recognize him when probably today they might give him a little more love just saying, Hey, look at his stats. And he didn't get a lot of support. They might actually vote for him. But yeah, Matlack, his record is, is I think one over 500 and his ERA is very good. And it's like a little over three. It's like uh, one, you know, in the you know top of uh, among the best in Mets history, but run support was, he was, he, he got, uh, he got royally screwed a lot of times. Yeah, I think you said, I think it was him. It was either him or Kuzman who pitched into the 10th inning of and lost. Like, it was like a 10th inning, one nothing loss. Yeah, that was that was uh, kind of the coup de grace of, uh, it was like the, the, the cherry on top of John Matlack's 1974 season. It was, he would probably just, after the game, just threw his hands up and go, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything. <laughs> Invest in offense, Matt. <laughs> the Mets, no. <laughs> <laughs> Never. 
<laughs> Mets to fans, no. <laughs> so you talked about Seaver a little bit, um, and having actually like done the analysis and all the research for this book, is Seaver actually the best Met in the franchise's history? Yeah, without question. I mean, not just when you consider the numbers, which are tremendous in their own right. I mean, in just about every category that matters, he is first. But it's also, it takes into account his impact on the Mets organization. Uh, that that says a lot about why he's still the greatest Met. I mean, when he came to the Mets, basically through the luck of the draw in 1966, uh, up to his rookie year, and then up then through the championship season of 1969, there was no player that had a, a, the impact he had on transforming the organization from just a bottom feeder every year, a perennial loser, to not only a contender, but a championship team. That type of impact, with all due respect to a guy like Jacob deGrom, who is, if you compare the two through their first six seasons, Jacob deGrom is not only on par, but is like slightly better. But the type of impact that Tom Seaver brought is something Jacob deGrom can't really do because it's just the time period in which he's doing it, in which Tom Seaver did it, from bringing the Mets from basically, you know, a laughing stock to more than respectability. Jacob Degrom, you know, even if he wins a championship, wins another Cy Young, it's not something that he could match, despite the fact that he may have numbers um, that could be better than Tom Seaver. Yeah, today I was watching. Um... The SNY is doing uh, like a Pete Alonso day today, yeah. and they just like played a bunch of like highlight games from his rookie season. Um, and one of them, during one of them, during the broadcast, they replayed um, an old interview with Tom Seaver. Um, I think it was from 2012, um, where he talked about um, how Gil Hodges is a lot of the reason why the Mets kind of got on the map as a franchise and got respectability as a franchise. And it was really, it was really nice to see Tom Seaver, you know, give all the credit to Gil Hodges and not, you know, without acknowledging how, what, how big of a role he himself played in it. He said that was all Gil. And I took all the skills that he taught me about being a professional uh, to the field for the Mets and wherever I went after that. So that was really, really nice. Yeah. No, the, the Seaver, like a lot of the Mets of that time, uh, especially the 69 Mets, they look at uh, Gil Hodges reverentially. I mean, the impact that he if, – if Tom Seaver is the most impactful player uh, during that time in that transitional period, I mean, Gil Hodges is the most important person uh, in terms of the impact that he, he not only gave to the team, basically saying, in a sense, you know, no one's going to laugh at us anymore – um, but the influence he had on the 1969 Mets to be champions. I mean, that's, that's something, you know, you know managers today, today can't really do that. Um, but Gil Hodges, the way he just maneuvered lineups and was a guiding force. Uh, I mean, you can hear it today. Like Seaver did in, said in 2012, um, like guys like Jerry Kuzman, Bud Harrelson, they talk about, you know, Gil Hodges, like, and they talk about the impact he had. It's, it's, it is, it's reverential. Is Gil Hodges the manager of the All-Star Mets? Yes, he is. Yes. For that reason um, that I just gave. I mean, with all due respect to Davey Johnson, most wins in franchise history, um, I can't see another manager doing what Gil Hodges did to that 19, with that 1969 Mets team. That's how important he was to that the, the success of that team. And who knows what would have happened. I mean, sadly, passed away 
right before the 1972 season began. I mean, who knows what what would happen after that? I think Bobby Valentine is your runner-up for for the managers. Yeah, so I um, I use the two honorable mentions as coaches, like you would normally do in an All Star game. So Davy Johnson and and Bobby Valentine got that. Um, I didn't. It was pretty easy. I think when you look at the top three managers in Mets history, they really stand out above the rest. Um, so Bobby Valentine would would uh, who was a coach and a player for the Mets. You know, we would he would keep the he would be a very entertaining just being on the bench. I think in in, in this uh, hypothetical team, the Mets so have not been a blessed the- franchise in the manager category, unfortunately. <laughs> no, not Team Terry. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I I like Terry Collins maybe more than other people. I think he was. I think he got a uh, got really a broken down organization uh, or a broken down team to inherit. And he kind of he took it as far as he could take it. Um, I would never. I did, did not uh, enjoy. I did not approve of a lot of his managerial decisions. Yeah, I think that. I, I mean, like, I think Terry Collins deserves immense credit for what he was able to achieve. But at the same time, I still think because of the because the 2015 Mets never started like a whole era of success. And because we've had managers since then that have not been great. I think that a lot of his, his tenure has been subject to revisionist history on the part of some is all I'll say about that. Yeah. Big bet. So um, what inspired you to write this book um, and to, to put together this all-star team? Where, where did the idea come from? The idea came from uh, Lions Press, um, the publisher. They they reached out to me. I think after I after I wrote my first book, uh, Mets and Tens, and one of the chapters in that book happened to be an all time team chapter. And uh, they asked me. They said, "Hey, we're doing this series of all time all star books." They uh, in in last things last August they came out with the Yankees book. Uh, they recently came out with a Green Bay Packers book and. Um, concurrent to the Mets book. They came out with a Pittsburgh Pirates all-time all-stars book. Um, so they asked me, this was right out again, right after I finished Mets in tens, which is like April, 2018. And my first, re- my re- initial reaction was I need a break. I need to rest. <laughs> like, <laughs> take my, you know, turn the motor off. And about seven months later, I emailed the guy back and said, okay, I'm ready. And if it was still available and it was. So, um, probably wouldn't have thought about an idea like this. I probably would have thought about something else, but when they, you know, when someone else gives you an idea, uh, when someone else puts an idea in front of you, um, that you feel like you can do, I, I, I thought like this was something I had uh, the capability of doing based on the last book. Um, so it didn't get a lot of time to do it, but it was, I was fortunate that I cranked it out in the, in the limited amount of time. And so what was the writing process like for this book compared to your first book? Were there any like lessons you took from your writing process from Mets and Tens and that you brought to this one? And did this one bring any unexpected challenges compared to the first book that you didn't see coming? Yeah, I, I learned a lot definitely from, from I learned, you know, the mistakes I made in the process of the first book. I, I took and made sure not to make again uh, when I wrote the next one. Um, the, this one was a little different in the sense that I, there were longer narratives as opposed to Mets and Tens where I kind of wrote like 250 word, you know, just little snippets about a certain event. 
um, I had to, you know, write however many 1600, 1700 words of a particular player. Um, so I treated them like 35 or 35 people mentioned in the book. Um, and I made sure to treat them like 35 long form articles and my writing process has always been like trying to put down something every day. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't, you know, it's never going to be perfect. I think that's something I struggled with in the first book. I tried to write a perfect sentence and I just sat there in front of a screen, like waiting and waiting and waiting. And a lot of times you shouldn't wait. You should just write something down and get to it later. So I made sure every day for, you know, however long, eight, nine months to just write something down. And, you know, whether it's, you know, 200 words, 500 words, a thousand words, put something down. You can always get back to it later. Uh, and that's how I manage my time uh, this time around. And I think I planned out my uh, process of writing this book a little better than I did the last one. So did you have an idea of like who you already wanted to include or did you just let the research go where it may? So when I started, I jotted down guys like I jotted down the players I thought would be on it and I'll be honest I didn't initially I initially put like you know a four-man rotation or a five-man rotation and a you know a bullpen and then I looked and I'm like I really don't want Armando Benitez on my all-time team so no let me just bring make this you know rotation a little bigger because I feel like that's deserved and like all-star teams I I thought of it like you would a major league all-star game yeah okay pitchers you're not gonna put five, just five, four starting pitchers or five starting pitchers. You might put six or seven. So I did that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wrote down guys, like I said, Daniel Murphy, I wrote down and was like, okay, maybe I'll come back to him. I had like some extra players. I think I initially thought I was going to do like a 25 player roster. And then I realized that I maybe like to expand it to what the all-star game used to be on like 30, 30, 30 person roster. Um, and I said, well, a lot of people do, these kind of all-time teams. How do I make mine different? As you know, aside from just trying to write um, interesting narratives, so I added the, the 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 two coaches or the honorable mention managers. I added the GM and I added the owner just to kind of spice it up a little bit. There was an article on Talking Chop, which is our um, the, our Braves sister blog, and they had an article where they created a team out of every position's like best individual year. And I thought that was really cool. Like having like the best team possible out of like the best performance possible out of each person. And I think that book would look a lot different if it went by that. Like you would have to include like 2013 Harvey, uh, 2012 Dickey. And I was like, huh, that's actually a really like interesting concept. That is now that is a really interesting idea, and it kind of ties into a little bit of my criteria for this book, um, because I looked at longevity as as a, a, a area of you know judgment, but I tried to you know make sure that people that had really impactful seasons, even if they or or a, a number of impactful seasons, even if they weren't there very long, uh, it still meant a lot in terms of. Mets the Mets fortunes of that particular those particular years um so like a guy like John Allred only played three seasons uh I gave him maybe a little more respect in terms of the first base position and and you know on as far as the roster was concerned I didn't like say well he's only there three years and he didn't compile enough stats I mean he, he has the best you know batting average for not only a single season but a career 
in, you know, in a Mets career. So I made sure to look at guys like that and, and say, Hey, you know, would I rather have this guy or rather have John Olbert? Well, I'd rather have John Olbert as a Met playing first base as a backup, at least. So that is interesting. I, it, it would be uh, kind of fun to do a team like that. And we got a lot of time to do it now. Yeah. I'm going to say maybe that's your next book. <laughs> I don't, I don't know about that. Maybe just like a Twitter post, like just, I did, <laughs> I did, a, I did a Twitter post a, a couple of days ago. I saw an article on the athletic and it was, who's the greatest defensive player in Mets history. And I think it was narrowed down to Ray Ordonez, Keith Hernandez, and maybe Juan Lagares. I'm trying to remember. And I just, just off the top of my head was like, hey, what would be the all-time Mets defensive team? And I didn't realize the kind of the hornet's nest I would encounter. Not that everyone was critical, but I kind of, you know, finagled with like right field and put Carlos Beltran there just for the heck of it. And people were like, why are you doing putting Carlos Beltran in right field when he's a center fielder? I was just like, okay, <laughs> I guess I can't, I can't win. But I was just kind of trying to start a conversation and I should be careful what I wish for. Especially when it comes to Mets Twitter. Um... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What is your sort of um, Mets fan origin story? Like, how did you become a Mets fan? How did you become a baseball fan in general? What era, like, of Mets baseball did you grow up watching? And who were some of your favorite players? So my dad has been a Mets fan since uh, since the beginning in 1962, and he kind of passed the baton to me, and I ran with it and have taken it to probably extremes that he could have imagined. <laughs> uh, but I saw my first game um, in 19, when I was five years old in 1992, and we lived in New York at the time, but we moved um, shortly after that to Washington, D.C., or the Washington, D.C. area, which is where I am now. Um, it's great to be in Nat's country. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, it's not the best I have experience with that. I lived in Baltimore for six years oh, okay. in grad school. So, yeah. yeah. Luckily, luckily, my girlfriend's an Orioles fan. So I, I'm, I don't, you know, I don't, I didn't get the Nats. Um, I didn't have to see it really up close. I could kind of tune it out for a bit. But yeah. Um, anyway, so I, yeah, I, I moved to, uh, to, to the DC area and we would go up to, because we had family up in New York, I, we'd go up like at least once a year to see the Mets. Um, at Shea Stadium, then City Field. So, I so going back to when I started, I became my dad had like the 1986 video and like the 25th anniversary video, and I just was like, oh my god, these Mets are so amazing. And then I like see the actual Mets of like '92 and '93 and go, where is everybody? <laughs> um, so yeah, I was I really initially my the first player I gravitated to was Gary Carter from seeing all those old videos. 
he was my favorite player at first and then took off from there with Mike Piazza. So I started loving catchers for some reason. Um, and then went on to David Wright for no, uh, no reason other than, you know, for not just the only reason being he has my last name. Great. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's, I, it, now I feel it's kind of weird now that I'm in my thirties to start revering players who are younger than me. And so, but even though Jacob DeGrom's like a year younger, uh, I still have tremendous respect from the fact that he came from obscurity and now he's, he's not only, not only the greatest of all those, of the, all those Mets pitchers um, who came up Harvey and Syndergaard and Wheeler and Rafael Montero, but he's like, he's like on par with Dwight Gooden and Tom Seaver now. It's really amazing. So um, I, yeah, I just have tremendous respect for Jacob DeGrom uh, and what he has accomplished so far. Yeah, Jacob DeGrom is definitely the favorite of many a Mets fan. And it's cool because, yeah, like you kind of think about I'm I'm around the same age as you, a couple years younger. But um, I definitely grew up with like Mike Piazza and Edgardo Alfonso in that era of Mets. And I think about how like David Wright was like a huge turning point in my fandom and like maybe become like obsessed with the Mets because that was the first player that I can think of that I followed from like being a minor leaguer to being like a legend. Um, so that was like a really yeah, and just turning fact, point. yeah, no, no, yeah, just uh, the fact that he was there. I mean, I remember watching day one in 2004, first game, and not only that, that but the lead up when everyone's like, "Oh, this is guy David Wright. He's he's you know going to be the savior in a sense, or he's going to be the franchise uh, going forward." And you just hope for that, and he turned out to be that for at least a, a good chunk of time. And we would only wish he could have done it for longer, but um, just the way he presented himself on and off the field. I mean, I, I have, you know, the respect I have for Jacob DeGrom is I have that and a more for, for David Wright and what he did and, and how he persevered to at least come back to play um, through all those injuries. So um, those teams I love so much. I have great fondness mainly for like the 99, 2000 teams, just the fact that it was just, first group of teams that were great uh, for in my lifetime and, and, and yours as well. Um, I remember I was uh, watching, what was, okay, I was watching game five of the NLCS uh, in 1999, that the Grand Slam single game and just like on YouTube because I wanted to do it because there's nothing else to watch. Um, <laughs> I just like, I, sat there and, you know, for five hours and 47 minutes, just like, oh my God, like watching the actual live game replay from like the original NBC broadcast. And I'm just, you know, it's take, takes me back 21 years and I'm like, I'm still nervous. Why am I still nervous over this game? And the same went for that game. What was it? Uh, was, I guess I broadcast it last Tuesday, um, the, the first uh, game in New York City after September 11th, which was, I mean, I was just as emotional watching Mike Piazza's eighth inning home run as I almost as I was, you know, was it nineteen years ago now? Linda was well, providing I, live commentary on the last pod during that. Yes, I was. <laughs> well, I have to say, I, I I knew when I got to third base, it was going to be a tough read. So, like, I because it was the same way. I fell in love with the '99 team, and Robin Ventura was the main reason why. Like, I just loved him, and to see like your hero come through for the first time. Like there's like that eventually we're going to start a series of like our most memorable games. And I think that's going to be what I write about is the grand slam single. Cause that's what made me 
fall in love with that team. Like I was, I loved them and I watched them the whole season, but just to see your baseball hero come through on the grandest stage for the big time for the first time, is just something that leaves a mark on a kid. And then, so, you know, and to that you put him and David Wright in, you know, the third base section. I don't know if you picked up on it. I haven't, um, but then I was like, I need to put this book down. I need to walk away. I need to like watch something funny because you mentioned, um, you know, the end of Shay and um, how Ventura came back and he walked out at from right field where his Grand Slam single landed, like just feet away from where his Grand Slam single landed. And the date was the closing of Shay, September 28th. 2008 and I was like wait a second so then I flipped back to the David Wright chapter and his last game was September 28th 2018 so the closing of Shea and David Wright's last game were exactly 10 years apart and then I started thinking I was like David Wright was our last connection to Shea and I was like, you know, so I was like, Shay is like really and truly close now. Like, okay, like Beltran may have been the connection, but now we won't speak of Beltran. Um, but so I was like, oh no. So like I, before I started like bawling, I'm like, okay, I need to like put on John Oliver or something. So <laughs> it was kind of funny just to see, because I'm like, I don't know if I ever would have made that connection if I didn't see read it in like one sitting and see those two dates back to back. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have made that connection either. I did not know that it was. I mean, had to be around the same date. I didn't know it was the exact same date. That's really interesting. And yeah, yeah you talk about yeah, and you talk about that Ventura moment. I mean, the whole game in that nineteen ninety nine NLCS game five. I mean, took years off my life. And that oh, team, totally. I I always think about this. If it if it was if this that team was happening now, I probably I probably couldn't stand them. I I would be like, oh my god, because that team was just given up for dead about 10 different times and they always like rose you know rose from the ashes and like oh my god okay they're still not done and i think as a kid you kind of like oh you love it it's like this is so fun but if you're like in your 30s you're like oh my god this is destroying my this is destroying everything inside me the oral history of that game that tim Britton just did for the athletic i don't know if you read it um but it was a really good article because they spoke to, you know, a lot of the people involved in that game. And, you know, Bobby Valentine said the same thing. And I think Al Leiter said the same thing. After that game, they were all just absolutely convinced they were going to win. I I thought, well, game and game six, they, I mean, after falling down five, nothing. And coming back. coming back. I mean, Mike got to hit that home run, I think, to tie the game. I think it was in the seventh at seven. I after he hit that home run, I thought I thought, oh my god, we're never losing again. <laughs> I thought it was just destined to be the Mets year, and of course, you know what? Three and four innings later, not. But it's that that sense of confidence after he hit that home run. I was like, what? What? Is, like this team can't lose. They can't be beaten. What? What's going on here? So um, that that yeah, that feeling I had, I had during that day, the roller coaster of emotions. I. I've said I forgot what I wrote in some article. I said that the Mets '99 Mets was not a roller coaster; it was an entire amusement park. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. Yeah, that sums it up. <laughs> yeah, I um, 
<laughs> Linda, you mentioned the connection between David Wright's last game and the last day at Shea. And, uh, you know, last week on the pod, we talked about the best games that we had ever been to. And I neglected to mention the fact that I was at the last game at Shea Stadium. Um, but I didn't mention it in my best games I've ever been to because the game <laughs> itself was so awful. Um, but the but the ceremony was incredibly beautiful. And I remember, like, Tom Seaver throwing the pitch to Mike Piazza. I just, like, bawled my eyes out. <laughs> I, like, couldn't take that. That was... I'm, like, getting chills right now thinking about it. That was something. So, like, even though the game itself was pretty terrible, I don't regret for a second having been there because it was it was it was really awesome to get get to witness history. So that was really cool. Yeah, to have like all these great Mets in one spot, like you're never going to see that again. It's true. Um, so Anthony DeComo has actually been doing a like weekly series on MLB.com. Brian, I don't know if you've been seeing them and keeping up with them, um, ranking the top five Mets at each position and putting out like Twitter polls so fans can vote. Um, so, uh, I don't know how much of it you've seen, but are there, have you noticed any key differences between his takes and yours and the public's takes and yours? Yeah, I've seen a little bit of it. Um, and, you know, understandably, we have, again, we have a lot of, uh, you know, free time to, to come up with these kind of ideas. And certainly an idea like this, even if it was my book, is going to come up eventually. So um, I understand why it's being done. Uh, I, I I looked a little bit at it, I, at it. I think they've done catcher, first baseman, and second baseman up to this point. Yeah. Um, and I know the fans voted for Piazza, which which I have obviously no problem with and, and is what I chose for, for the starting catcher. Um, I, I think Anthony DeComo had Piazza, then Carter, then Gary Carter, then Jerry Grody, uh, which is the three that I put on the team. And I think that a guy like Jerry Grody, who was very important to the 1969 team, uh, maturing the pitching staff, uh, just a solid presence behind the plate um, deserves to be recognized. And that's why I put him on the team because his, his numbers are not even close to someone like Piazza or Carter. He wasn't that type of offensive player, um, but his defense and his leadership was so important that I felt like he needed to be recognized. Um, and as far as first baseman, fans voted for Keith. He had Keith. I had Keith. That's an obvious choice. Um, I think the only issue I, I took was with Anthony Como um, putting Ed Cranepool second, um, which is reasonable. I, this is the one of the great things about doing a book like this. You can have different, criteria like you can say hey i'm i'm gonna look at someone who you know stayed with the mets for a while and built up their numbers and and you know has that kind of impact where they are beloved and they you know had leadership in certain categories and in that sense ed cranepool is a guy you can put as your second best first baseman um for the criteria i use the kind of a combination of uh impact stats records um, and also just the, the general, who would I rather have? I went with John Allrood um, as the, the backup um, because I looked at Ed Creampool more with all due respect. And I, very great guy. We all love Ed Creampool. He was a compiler. He played, what, 17 seasons, I think 17 or 18 seasons with the, with the Mets, um, 62 to 79. Very good pincher at the end of his career. Uh, but he, was, he you know, had the most hits in Mets history because he was there for a while. And I guess that speaks more to the Mets not keeping their players around. Yep. 
but and then, and then as far as second baseman, I'm, I'm I actually don't know if I saw that. I'm sure Alfonso was got the nod from the fans if the vote has been done already. Yes, and if he did. Tacoma, yeah, and if Tacoma wrote his piece, I'm I'm assuming it was. I actually think I did see this. I think it was Alfonso, then Murphy, then uh, Wally Backman, which was the three that I had, uh, and I think Jeff Kent was fourth. I didn't include him. Didn't include Jeff Kent in the honorable mention, but he certainly uh, deserves to be recognized and was a little better than people thought. And then I think he had Felix Mion fifth, if I'm not mistaken, who I had as an honorable mention. So overall, it, it's pretty much pretty much parallels what I had. And and I think again, you can you can make different reasonings for why you're putting someone where. And I um, I really it's hard to have an issue with it because there are so many different. Um, ways that you can create not only a team, but create your own rankings of these positions. So we're coming up on um, a big anniversary and a guy who plays heavily in your book, um, and that's Doc Gooden. So um, I was wondering what, you know, in your, in your research and your writing, you know, what, what comes to mind about, about Doc and about his debut with his debut, his debut was actually pretty modest. I mean, he, he won the game. I think he went five innings, gave up a, a run on three hits. Um, it, it was in Houston, and I think his parents were there. So, I mean, it was, it was a relatively subdued opener. I guess that's what happens when you're on the road. Um, com- it was subdued compared to what would become later that year, especially with games at Chase Stadium. Um, you know, with the K corner in the left field, you know, stands, upper deck, just the, the event nature of games that he pitched at 19 years old um, was truly something to behold. I mean, I wish, I don't know, I don't, I'm trying to think of what era of Mets history I would love to be a part of and love to have gone to games. I mean, that maybe 84, 85, when they were kind of coming up, that might be it, just because that was, it was you know, the Mets coming back out of the doldrums into respectability. And Keith Hernandez was certainly leading that uh, on an everyday basis. But Dwight Gooden was certainly leading that on the mound every fifth day. Um, Just, you know, just blowing away uh, opposing hitters who were, you know, 10 years older than him. Um, And he went on to strike out 276, which is still a rookie record, um, win rookie of the year, of course, uh, and almost won the Cy Young Award. So, it's funny when you look at that debut, it just looks like kind of a, it just a regular old game. And because it's in Houston and it's in the Astrodome, didn't have a lot of fanfare. Um, I looked at the, I watched the YouTube uh, video of it and they did, they did make pretty big mention to it. I think Ralph Kiner <laughs> compared it to uh, the movie, a star is born. And uh, I, I, I think he was quite prophetic because he was, Dwight Gooden was a, I mean, he was a, a rocket ship coming out, you know, in his first two seasons. I mean, they were remarkable. So they, so the broadcast did make mention and did kind of hint uh, that this was a star pitcher. And, but I don't think they had any idea what he would become, not only that year, but the next year. So was he like bigger than like, like a Harvey's view? Was that he as anticipated as like Matt Harvey was, or were they the same? Was Doc more anticipated? I think, uh, I don't know if, I don't think Dwight Gooden's debut, like as a, you know, at Shea Stadium was as highly touted. I think maybe today 
we give, I think because there's more attention given to pitchers that uh, are in the minor leagues and come up through the system, we kind of put more focus on those, on those pitchers. Um, I think like someone like, you know, when Mike Trout came up, it was, it got a lot of attention or, you know, when any kind of big game prospect um, starts, whether it's a pitcher and everyday player, they get a little more attention because I think we just generally examine the whole scope of baseball now more, more, more closely. So um, I think from a Mets perspective, he was certainly obviously known. I mean, he, he, he um, uh, had a great end to the minor league season in AAA. Um, I think he, he, shot up through the minor league system um, and led the Tidewater team to the minor league world series in 83. Um, and so, so he was known, but I don't think he got the, he certainly didn't get the attention of like a Matt Harvey or a Zach Wheeler or a Noah Syndergaard in their first starts. Um, but I think when you realize what young pitchers could do, a young pitcher like a Dwight Gooden, maybe after that people gave more attention to young pitchers that could be impactful. It's funny because um, another one of the Pete Alonzo highlight games t- today on SMY featured an interview from Doc Gooden, um, and it was it was a <laughs> Jacob Degrom start. Um, so it was mostly talking about like kind of um, him compared to Jacob Degrom um, as being like a franchise cornerstone. And so he talked a lot about because in that game it was the game against the Braves where the Mets like kicked the Braves' butts, and Pete obviously hit like hit a homer and did really well and um, wait that actually happened they actually beat the Braves yes they did they kicked their butt and Jake Jake had pitched eight scoreless innings and he wanted to and like he was gonna oh, come was out that of the game Freeman and Donaldson had yep. back-to-back home run oh yeah it was, was that so game. bad and so Ugh. they interviewed Doc Gooden during the whole like Jake didn't want to come out of the game he wanted to come back out for the ninth and pitch the complete game and Doc was talking about how like how like that mentality is like what you need in a in a successful ace and how you know nothing you're a perfectionist and nothing is ever good enough like he clearly thinks he has more and that eight scoreless innings isn't even good enough uh so it was interesting I think that now we look a lot more like to Doc Gooden and Jacob deGrom comparisons whereas when they were coming up it was a lot more like Matt Harvey but now obviously Jacob deGrom who had the less heralded prospect pedigree ends up being the guy that joins the Mount Rushmore so to speak of Mets along with Seaver and Gooden as far as the Mets starting pitching. Yeah, and, and you want to talk about uh, unheralded beginnings. I mean, Jacob deGrom, I mean, I don't think he, he got n- no fanfare in that first start. which came against the Yankees in 2014. And um, this is going to sound ironic, but he I think he gave up one run and lost, you know, no run support. So, he yeah. took a backseat to Rafael Montero. Like, Rafael yes, Montero was the oh, yeah. more exciting prospect at the time. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, no one thought Jacob I mean – he didn't really wow anyone in, in the minors and, you know, they brought him in. I, I don't know if I'm trying to remember if that was a, you know, an, an emergency start. I don't think it was. It was. I think oh, they okay. really brought him up to go into the bullpen and then Dylan G got hurt. So then okay. he was replacing G. Okay. So I was, okay. I'm sure remember that, but yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. But yeah, he just, just it was, no one gave any second thought to like, okay, this guy's going to, you know, not only win rookie of the year, but he's going to do everything that, that he has done so far. And it's remarkable. I think when you hear him talk, he's almost not satisfied with two Cy Young's in a row. I mean, it's kind of amazing to hear him say that. 
Yeah. A true to form Sim Jake is in a tie, a one to one tie in the seventh <laughs> inning. <laughs> Very much. Very much. Poor um, Sim Jake or Digital so on, Jake. So on brand. It really is. I mean, they were facing versus Digital Verlander, so it's kind of expected. But poor Digital Jake. It's almost like <laughs> a comfort to return to the to the frustration of <laughs> no runs support for Jake. He lasted longer than Verlander. He just got out of the seventh inning. So we'll see if he goes back out there for the eighth. Good stuff. Um, So, Brian, before we close things out, um, I wanted to ask you, this is sort of just like not topical to the book, but topical to what's going on in baseball, or as we should say, not baseball (laughs) right now. Um, (laughs) But what do you think of this new Arizona plan that's been kicking around? I want to know like what other people's takes are on it besides mine. Uh, so I, look, I want to see baseball return as much as all of you. I it, like, you know, it's gives me almost like life in a sense, um, to see real baseball being played, uh, no matter what I, and I know that major league baseball, they wouldn't do this if this, if this wasn't foolproof, like they wouldn't just go out there hastily. I don't think, and do something or play these games, um, in which there could be some risk. I mean, there's risk in any, anything you do, but you know, risk in terms of, of the coronavirus. Um, so I would love to see baseball in any regard. I don't, I'm not like going to be, I, I think every measure should be taken to try to play because I think not only will it just create general goodwill, but it you know also would help advertisers. Uh, it would just help the general economy. Uh, in, term, in terms of being on TV, I think you could like mic the guys. There could be some creativity with how these games are played. I just don't if it's if it's at too much of a risk to the well-being of the people there, players, um, you know, maybe you know media or whomever else is there. Um, I don't want that risk to be taken. Um, I think that I, I I think there are a lot of factors that need to be taken into account in order for this to happen. And I know major league baseball is aware of that, but there, I just start to think I heard on ESPN today, I think it was Jeff Passan was talking um, because these players are going to be basically, you know, hold up and they're, they're, they're just like not going to be allowed <laughs> into the outside world beyond just going to and from uh, the stadium from the hotel. And he said, you know, Mike Trout's wife is due in August. Like, is Mike Trout like not allowed to leave? Like, is he, is he like just going to have to stay there or is he going to, what's this, you know, there's a lot of different things to, to put into, to call into question. I mean, do people, are there people with like, you know, who might be more symptomatic if God forbid there, someone had the coronavirus um, than other players, even though these players are young. So it's, there are a lot of different things to consider. And I know major league baseball is doing it, but I just, I, 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 I don't want to see baseball played, um, if it's going to mean too much of a risk to the livelihoods of others. Well said. Well, I, yeah, I saw one article. It was, they were kind of being facetious, but they're like, how do you keep a runner on first and comply with social distancing rules? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. In order, <laughs> there are a lot of different, yeah, a lot of different factors. I guess there's, you know, home plate collisions aren't going to be a factor anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like they were saying, like they would have to sit like six feet apart in the in the stands instead of in the dugouts. Like 
there's no way to fully protect them. Like, as long as they're on a field together, you're still exposing them. You're exposing the security guards. You're exposing the the trainers. The So why even even take the risk at that point? I don't think it's it's worth it for and then they were saying it would be like seven innings and it would just be like watered down baseball in 115 degree heat like nobody it wouldn't even be good baseball yeah that's what i was kind of thinking about this whole thing in addition to obviously the risk it poses to not only players but staff um who like definitely did not sign up for this and don't make millions of dollars um but like not only that, the like I just think that the game would be so unrecognizable. Would it even be worth it? Like it might just make me too sad. Like I'd be like, this isn't baseball. Whatever this is, it's not baseball, and I would almost rather not have it at all. But I guess it depends on how desperate we get as the summer stretches on. <laughs> I don't okay, know. Okay, so oh, I was gonna say, I'm just I'm willing to wait maybe a little longer. I mean, I know that they're, they're aiming for May or maybe even early June, but I would almost if if there's a possibility of a more realistic baseball situation in say August, I would rather wait for that. Um, but again, I, I I would almost rather them just take it easy or take it play it safe than to try to risk uh, anyone's well being. And as soon as somebody says tests positive, they're going to have to shut it down again. So I don't want them to have to start and then stop again. So, like, if you're going to do it, it has to be, you know, 100%. Because then what are you going to do? Have a suspended season after two weeks, three weeks? It's not, it's just, it's not worth it. And Arizona is not one of the states that was exactly on the ball as far as response. <laughs> I'll just say that. Yeah. So yeah. I know that I it look- seems like they're not a hotbed right now compared to like New York, New it Jersey. Could be. But like the point is that like it could be later. <laughs> and so we don't know. What made them choose Arizona to begin with? Because it's hot? Yeah, because they could play the season until like December if they wanted to. Oh. All right, and but, keep it uh, all in one place, you know, and not have travel and stuff. In 115 degree weather. Yep. The anonymous well, Met said, what was it? What was the quote? Things don't... Nothing die. Like, nothing lives nothing in the lives desert. There. Everything, Everything dies. dies. <laughs> they're, like, they're so... They're, they're, the Mets are anonymous, anonymously writing poetry. <laughs> Who's yep. the secret goth Met? Is what I want to know. Yeah, I, I feel I feel some strong some strong vibes there that I want to connect with in this dark time of ours. Well, who strong, do you think it is? I think it's Seth that's Lugo. a great question. Seth Lugo wouldn't be uh, isn't a bad choice actually. That's my theory that it's Seth Lugo that said that. It's strong mid two thousands emo kid energy. <laughs> This is this is true. <laughs> See, I was thinking Pete because he played in the Arizona Fall League, so I assumed it was somebody intimate with Arizona. That's but then fair. somebody else said it had big JD energy, which I can also see. I don't think I just don't think it's a hitter for some reason. I think because the pitchers are going to be more pissed mm. about having to do the desert situation. <laughs> I could be. It's, I could see it being Cindergard. Yeah, but he's not going to play though. That was That's my true. 
Syndergaard, also, it we, definitely sounds like something Syndergaard would say. Would. Like, if you read the If he was healthy, I would say it would be Syndergaard. But then somebody else made the good point that he would put his name on yep, it if it was I think Syndergaard. he would put his name on it. I don't he think he'd be an anonymous. He would just post it on Twitter. Yeah, he would just exactly. tweet it. And that's how yeah. I feel about Strowman, too. Like, it's also something mm-hmm. Strowman would say, I think. But I think he would just tweet it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Whereas I think Seth Lugo's a little more, like, private and subdued. Yeah. And so... <laughs> It seems like like inner brooding, like inner secret brooding of Seth Lugo. I don't well, know. Who likes Mike Puma on speed dial? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. You have to think of like which Mets would call Puma, which I don't know. But yeah, I don't know either because I feel like they would call like one of the younger guys if it was like a JD, or they would just tell Gelbs. Yeah, if you if Puma you... does for better or for worse, he does have that hustle, and I could see him rattling off a text to every single Met in the first like. 10 seconds after the story dropped. <laughs> so what do you think? <laughs> and getting think? and getting the feedback that way. Yeah, for real. So if you guys have uh if you listeners have alternative theories about which met you think it is, drop it um in our replies on Twitter. We'd like to hear all your theory all your conspiracy theories about which met gave the anonymous emo quote. Um this is all we have right now. <laughs> this is literally all we have. Um, so, but, um, we're going to close the show on a happy note. Like we do. Oh, hell yeah. Jake had 12 strikeouts and he left with the win. He can get the win. It's two to one now. And the chances is in the game. (laughs) Excellent. That is such good news. Um, we're going to close the show out. Like we do every week with walk-off wins where each of us talks about what is making us happy this week, baseball related or otherwise. Brian Wright, what is your walk-off win? So today, and I guess maybe as we're speaking, I don't know if they, they get the game uh, broadcasted ended, but they are streaming on MLB, the Johan Santana no-hitter. And um, I really enjoy, I'm going to try to watch it if I can, uh, the end of it at least. But I have a, a quick story about how I saw the ending. Um, as I said, I was in, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I was supposed to go to the uh, Nationals-Braves game that night for no really good reason. And we're driving to the game. It starts pouring. We don't really have tickets. We're just going to get them there. So it starts pouring and we're in traffic and we all decide to turn around me and three other friends. And uh, I, I realized I had forgotten my cell phone and I said, Oh, well, whatever. I'll just, you know, just get it when I get home. And we go to a restaurant with no TV and I, I don't know what's obviously don't know what's going on. No one tells me. And after we have dinner, we go to a bar in a suburb of D.C. And I walk into the sports bar with a bunch of TVs and I see the game being played. It's the seventh inning. And Mike Baxter makes this great catch. And I see the score. And I go, ah, it's too bad he didn't make that in a closer game. Then I <laughs> wait for the inning to end. And, of course, you see the line score. And I go, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I happen to watch catch the last two innings. Um, watching it with you know no sound but at least i got to see it so uh it was quite prophetic that or it was quite uh fortuitous i should say that the the rains came yeah, yeah otherwise I you would have been at a game and you wouldn't have been able to see it i would have been at a game i guess someone might have said something it was kind of interesting i like never knock on wood never lost my cell phone like i maybe once or twice in my life and that's the one time they might have shown it on the scoreboard because I remember I was at City Field when Hamels um, threw the no hitter on the Cubs, and they had they turned it on in the in the in the in the Promenade Club, and um, so I actually got to see Hamels, 
But I did not. Th- I actually have a funny story about Johan Santana's no hitter too. Um, I went out for Mexican with my friend, and we were in just eating, and then we heard a commotion coming from the bar, and we kept hearing Santana, Santana. I'm like, what? So then, like, we heard like cheering. So I was like, oh my god, does he have a no hitter? So we pulled out our phones. So we heard. So I basically watched Johan Santana's. Uh, no hitter on my phone because like, did he do it? Did he do it? And then we heard cheering at the bar, and then um, and then so then we pulled out our phone. We're like, he did it! He did it! So that was my friend. Um, after that, two years later, we were out for fondue. I pull out my phone. And I have a notification saying Jacob Degrom struck out the first eight hitters of a game when he was a rookie. And then two years after that, I was at her wedding. I pull up my phone and I see Bartolo Colon has hit a home run. (laughs) (laughs) So every time I have been with this friend, something bizarre happens with the mess. (laughs) So you just need to hang out with this friend all the time? Is what you're trying to tell me? I think I do. We, we, We actually did. We've been to one Met game together. And it was awful. John Neese pitched against the Marlins. John Carlos Stanton hit the longest home run I've ever seen, like, in person. <laughs> oh, no. So she's not allowed in City Field, but I think we just need to hang out more often. <laughs> yeah, just at bars, restaurants, you know. Fondue. Maybe she can, like, renew her vows. Who knows what would happen? Oh, yeah, maybe. that'd be cool. Maybe the Mets will win <laughs> the World Series. That's true. <laughs> Maggie, what is your walk-off win for this week? Um, so I'm going in a non-baseball direction because what is baseball? Um, but so uh, I'm not quite sure how much of this is getting coverage outside of New York, but at least um, at least in much of the city, every night at 7 p.m. from 7 to 7.02, everybody, and okay, not 100% of the population, but an enormous number of people in our neighborhood um, sticks their heads out the windows and cheers and screams and claps in appreciation of the um, essential workers and the healthcare providers. And, you know, this is, um, I live in northern Manhattan. We're tucked in between two major hospitals, including New York, like the enormous New York Presbyterian at Columbia, uh, which is, which has a huge, huge number of COVID-19 patients. And it's just like, it's become the loveliest tradition. And I, I love it, especially for our neighborhood for a couple of different reasons. And one is that like, this is a loud neighborhood. This is a neighborhood that likes its music, that hangs out outside and chats all night long. This is, and you know, there's lots of drivers around because it's near some highways. This is like a bustling neighborhood and it's so quiet now. And it like, just, it just the silence, like, except for, you know, a an ambulance siren every like two minutes three minutes it's it's really heartbreaking to hear it just so still um but this is like the one time every night when everybody just lets loose and there are people with noisemakers there are folks like driving in circles around blocks in their car like leaning on the horn like it is just like this enormous explosion of sound um and then also it is so close to the hospitals and at least um, at least one of them, at least Allen Hospital has definitely like every night hears us. And that just warms my heart and the kids love it. I spend all day shushing them. Number two voice, number two voice. Like, <laughs> and this is where I could be like, all right, 
scream. And, you know, it's just, it's just wonderful. And I hope, um, I hope every city starts doing it because it really, it feels good. Um, it's, it's a release. Uh, there's also, there, if you want to read a little bit more, you know, on the ground about it, there was a Washington Post article a couple days ago, but um, it just, it's one of those things that just makes me proud to live where I do. Um, and it's like, it's the tiniest thing that we can all do, but we can all do it. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really awesome. It's been awesome to see all the videos of it because I've seen some videos of yeah. it um, mm -hmm. in New York, but also in a couple other cities too. Um, and I've seen it in the UK also even. Um, so it's been cool to see. Like, we Yeah, like I think Italy started it, I think. Yeah, Italy did it yeah. as well. Yeah, I think Spain... Yeah. Yeah, but because then, like, you know, you kind of feel so helpless. Like, how can you help? And at least that's, like you said, it's the, you know, it's a tiny gesture, but at least it's something. And I really do hope it's getting through and the, the everybody on the front lines really does know how appreciated they are during all this. And, you know, it's a unifying force also because um, earlier this evening, this one rando Karen logs into our neighborhood Facebook group and is Ugh. like, everybody should spend as much energy donating all of their hoarded medical supplies as they do cheering. I'm like, first of all, the folks hoarding medical supplies are not cheering. But no. moreover, I have never seen a neighborhood group smackdown descend so quickly and decisively. <laughs> like nobody had any time for her bullshit. There were like, a hundred people, including like our kind of crotchety old neighborhood group moderator, were just like, nope, not having it. We are the best. This is wonderful. You hush. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. It's great. Yeah, I oh, like no. I um so my a, a very close friend of mine um is a, a medical uh, lab tech um at a major New York City hospital um and his friends reached out to the Mets and Pete Alonzo recorded him a personalized video and I Aww. saw it on Facebook last night and I almost cried I was like this That's is amazing. the best thing ever and he's obviously like me a huge Mets fan um that was like the thing that brought us together in college um is that we were both like the biggest Mets fans that each other knew <laughs> on campus and so like you know, it was just so awesome to see because I know how much that must have made his entire day, week, month, year <laughs> um, to see. Life. Life. <laughs> so it was, that was really cool. Oh, Pete. Pete's such a treasure. Pete's been awesome during this. Like He really so has. Good. He's such a good, he's such a good egg, you guys. Yeah. Um, I know. How do we look into David Wright and then him? I know, right? Like just by unlucking through every other part of it, <laughs> literally everything else. Um, <laughs> Got to balance it out somehow. Um, so, Linda Servich, what is your walk-off win for this week? I know last week my walk-off win was um, my best friend's um, baby being born. Um, and now this week, I got two more texts saying two more babies were born. <laughs> um, there's we're probably of that age. Yeah. Uh, there's probably going to be a baby boom in nine months, but I'm going through my own baby boom right now. <laughs> um, so a good friend from high school, um, she had her second, um, a baby boy, and my cousin had his third, his first baby girl. He had two boys, and now this is 
his first girl and the first girl in that family because his sister had two boys. So there was four boys in that family. So this this girl is going to have a lot on her plate growing up. Um, but yeah, it was just nice like to be surprised, like, you know, seeing, hey, look, Allison is here. And it's just like I said last week, it's nice to know life is still going on and life is still happening. And, you know, it's not all bad because, you know, you just hear the constant, you know, this how many more have infected how many you know well just the numbers are just staggering and just so hard to comprehend so just to get like a little boost like that um of a newborn um and they'll have like their whole lives ahead of them and they're gonna their parents are gonna have quite a story to tell them about when they were born um but yeah it was just it it's you you need stuff like that like a break from all the all the bad news so congratulations to my cousin and to my friend Terry. And um, seems like everybody, mom, baby, families are doing well. So much love to to all of them. That's great. Baby's name is Allison. Good name. I approve. Yes. Yes, she is. Allison Elizabeth. <laughs> Highly approved by me. Yes. Um, <laughs> best name ever, in my opinion. Um, so my walk-off win for this week, um, is that I got to watch Onward on Disney Plus, and it was a great movie. <laughs> basically, Honestly, it's so bad. basically don't have much more to say than that, but yeah, I had been looking forward to it because I knew that because of everything that's going on, obviously the movie theaters aren't open, um, and so movies are being dropped, um, to be streamed instead of, you know, um, being in theaters, and so, um, I had been looking forward to this movie for a long time because I love Disney Pixar, who the heck doesn't, um, and I had been seeing trailers for this movie, like, long before, you know, all of this went down. And so I was planning on seeing it in theaters when it came out. Um, but instead, obviously, the world is very different now. Um, and so I happened to have Disney+. Plus. I had it already. I'm, I'm lucky enough that I got a year of it for free because of my Verizon, like, phone plan. Like, if you have an... If you, FYI, like, PSA, if you have a Verizon, like, unlimited data phone plan, you can get a year of Disney+, Plus for free um through Verizon so that's pretty cool um so I'm on my year of free Disney plus um and so yeah on Sunday um I watched Onward with my parents and with Michael and I really enjoyed it it was really good I wouldn't like necessarily rank it among like the top five Pixar's because obviously like that's an impossible list to crack um but like it was definitely like it exceeded my expectations I'll put it that way like I didn't have like super high expectations like I had high expectations because it's Pixar and like obviously anything Pixar has like a minimum of expectations that are there already just inherent in it being Pixar but I wasn't like oh like this has to be the next Wally or the next up or I won't be happy um and it was like even better than I thought I really enjoyed it and I felt feelings I did not expect to feel because it's Pixar so of course it's gonna make you cry um so yeah, I really enjoyed it and it was nice to like watch something new for once instead of like, you know, which show should I binge that came out a while ago that I just never got around to seeing? Like this was actually a new thing that debuted that I got to watch. Like what do you know about that? Um so yeah, very simple, but that's my walk-off one for this week. Um Oh, the Digital Mets one, Betances yes. and Diaz closed it out. Oh. There was a scary moment, but JD Davis ran down a ball right at the wall against 
Edwin Diaz, but two to one, Jacob DeGrom got the win and Diaz got the save. <laughs> really the dream Mets game that you would hope the it really was. Mets would have. Yeah. That was, that I would was have a... liked one where Diaz didn't make it interesting, but let's not get ridiculous. I mean, he let's didn't give up it. any hit. Like, it was at, like, where the hill would have been. Like, that's where they hit it, too. I see. But I JD did. So, DeGrom's final line was, digital DeGrom's final line was seven innings pitched, four hits, 12 strikeouts, one earned run, and four walks. Awesome. That is solid. Good stuff. Yep. Good job, Digital Mets. Oh, digital. Yeah, go go get that Digital Cy Young, Digital Jake. Yeah. Amen. Three-peat. Um, <laughs> so while you're waiting for the next pod to drop, you should uh, order Brian's book, The New York Mets All-Time All-Stars. Brian, where can people order this book since they can't physically go to a bookstore right now? Yes, good point. Uh, yeah, they can go to Amazon uh, or uh, any major online line, online retailer. Um, if anyone wants a signed copy, I'm happy to provide one, uh, obviously with payment, of course. Uh, you can reach me at BrianWright86. Uh, you can DM me and I'm happy to send one to you. Fantastic. You can also go to AmazonAvenue.com, check out all of our fantastic content. Chris McShane is messing around with digital Mets of his own. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And we are providing game commentary like we normally would for the site for the digital Mets. Um, We're also dropping um, various other fun features like Vaz's March Badness bracket, which is in the finals now is the final vote finished or not yet i don't i think it ends thursday it ends thursday the final vote it's chase utley against the Wilpons. so pick your worst mets villain between those two (laughs) yeah it's it's a it's a uh, it's an epic final so um it's kind of a runaway right now i was kind of surprised i'm surprised that the vote is lopsided as it is but we're not going to give away which direction it is lopsided because i don't want to influence the voters so yes go to amazingavenue.com vote on the march badness check out um chris mcshane's feature um digital mets we're gonna have um various other fun features for you like best mets games we've ever been to favorite players all sorts of other stuff to fill the time while we're waiting for baseball to come back you can follow the site on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can follow each of us on Twitter. I'm at Petite PhD. How about you, Linda? At Linda Servich. And you, Maggie? Maggie162. So follow all of us and Brian on Twitter. Um, and you should rate and review the podcast after you hit the subscribe button. Please, please rate and review the podcast. It really helps folks find the show. Um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. The original intro and outro music to this podcast is by Bunga. Let's go Mets. Don't forget, there is no crying in podcasts.